Book Seven, Chapter Forty Nine of Robert Ellesmere by Mary Augusta Ward. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Simon Evers. Book Seven, Chapter Forty Nine. Two days later, they were in London again. Robert was a great deal better and beginning to kick against invalid restraints. All men have their pet irrationalities. Ellesmere's irrationality was an aversion to doctors from the point of view of his own ailments. He had an unbounded admiration for them as a class, and would have nothing to say to them as individuals that he could possibly help. Flaxman was sarcastic. Catherine looked imploring in vain. He vowed that he was treating himself with a skill any professional might envy, and went his way. And for a time the stimulus of London and of his work seemed to act favourably upon him. After his first welcome at the club, he came home with bright eye and vigorous step, declaring that he was another man. Flaxman established himself in St. James's Place. Town was deserted. The partridges at Greenlaws clamoured to be shot. The head-keeper wrote letters which would have melted the heart of a stone. Flaxman replied recklessly that any decent fellow in the neighbourhood was welcome to shoot his birds, a reply which almost brought upon him the resignation of the outraged keeper by return of post. Lady Charlotte wrote and remonstrated with him for neglecting a landowner's duties, inquiring at the same time what he meant to do with regard to that young lady. To which Flaxman replied calmly that he had just come back from the lakes, where he had done not indeed all that he meant to do, but still something. Miss Laban and he were not engaged, but he was on probation for six months, and found London the best place for getting through it. "'So far,' he said, "'I am getting on well, and developing an amount of energy, especially in the matter of correspondence, which alone ought to commend the arrangement to the relations of an idle man. But we must be left to dream our dream unto ourselves alone. One word from anybody belonging to me, to anybody belonging to her on the subject, and—but threats are puerile. For the present, dear aunt, I am your devoted nephew, Hugh Flaxman. On probation. Flaxman chuckled as he sent off the letter. He stayed because he was too restless to be anywhere else, and because he loved the Ellesmeres for Rose's sake and his own. He thought, moreover, that a cool-headed friend, with an eye for something else in the world than religious reform, might just be useful then to Ellesmere, and he was determined at the same time to see what the reformer meant to be at. In the first place, Robert's attention was directed to getting possession of the whole block of buildings in which the existing school and lecture-rooms took up only the lowest floor. This was a matter of some difficulty, for the floors above were employed in warehousing goods belonging to various minor import trades, and were held on tenures of different lengths. However, by dint of some money and much skill, the requisite clearances were effected during September and part of October. By the end of that month, all but the top floor, the tenant of which refused to be dislodged, fell into Ellesmere's hands. Meanwhile, at a meeting held every Sunday after lecture, a meeting composed mainly of artisans of the district, but including also Robert's helpers from the West, and a small sprinkling of persons interested in the man and his works from all parts, the details of the new Brotherhood of Christ was being hammered out. Catherine was generally present, sitting a little apart, with a look which Flaxman, who now knew her well, was always trying to decipher afresh, a sort of sweet aloofness, as though the spirit behind it saw, down the vistas of the future, ends and solutions which gave it courage to endure the present. Murray Edwards, too, was always there. It often struck Flaxman afterwards that in Robert's attitude towards Edwards at this time, 
in his constant desire to bring him forward, to associate him with himself as much as possible in the government and formation of the infant society, there was a half-conscious presence of a truth that as yet none knew, not even the tender wife, the watchful friend. The meetings were of extraordinary interest. The men, the great majority of whom had been disciplined and moulded for months by contact with Ellesmere's teaching and Ellesmere's thought, showed a responsiveness, a receptivity, even a power of initiation, which often struck Flaxman with wonder. Were these the men he had seen in the club hall on the night of Robert's address, sour, stolid, brutalised, hostile to all things in heaven and earth? And we go on prating that the age of saints is over, the role of the individual lessening day by day? Fool! Go and be a saint! Go and give yourself to ideas! Go and live the life hid with Christ in God, and see! So would run the quick comment of the observer. But incessant as was the reciprocity, the interchange and play of feeling between Robert and the wide following growing up around him, it was plain to Flaxman that although he never moved a step without carrying his world with him, he was never at the mercy of his world. Nothing was ever really left to chance. Through all these strange debates, which began rawly and clumsily enough, and grew every week more and more absorbing to all concerned, Flaxman was convinced that hardly any rule or formula of the new society was ultimately adopted which had not been for long in Robert's mind, thought out and brought into final shape, perhaps, on the petty dull sands. It was an unobtrusive art, his art of government, but a most effective one. At any moment, as Flaxman often felt, at any rate in the early meetings, the discussions as to the religious practices which were to bind together the new association might have passed the line and become puerile or grotesque. At any moment, the jarring characters and ambitions of the men Ellesmere had to deal with might have dispersed to that delicate atmosphere of moral sympathy and passion in which the whole new birth seemed to have been conceived, and upon the maintenance of which its fruition and development depended. But as soon as Ellesmere appeared, difficulties vanished, enthusiasm sprang up again. The rules of the new society came simply and naturally into being, steeped and haloed, as it were, from the beginning, in the passion and genius of one great heart. The fastidious critical instinct in Flaxman was silenced no less than the sour, half-educated analysis of such a man as Lestrange. In the same way, all personal jars seemed to melt away beside him. There were some painful things connected with the new departure. Wardlaw, for instance, a conscientious comptist, refusing stoutly to admit anything more than an unknowable reality behind phenomena, was distressed and affronted by the strongly religious bent Ellesmere was giving to the work he had begun. Lestrange, who was a man of great though raw ability, who almost always spoke at the meetings, and whom Robert was bent on attaching to the society, had times when the things he was half inclined to worship one day, he was much more inclined to burn the next in the sight of all men, and when the smallest failure of temper on Robert's part might have entailed a disagreeable scene and the possible formation of a harassing left wing. But Robert's manner to Wardlaw was that of a grateful younger brother. It was clear that the Comtist could not formally join the Brotherhood, but all the share and influence that could be secured him in the practical working of it was secured him. And what was more, Robert succeeded in infusing his own delicacy, his own compunctions on the subject, into the men and youths who had profited in the past by Wardlaw's rough self-devotion. So that if, through much that went on now, he could only be a spectator, at least he was not allowed to feel himself an alien or forgotten. As to Lestrange, 
against a man who was as ready to laugh as to preach, and into whose ardent soul nature had infused a saving sense of the whimsical in life and character, cynicism and vanity seemed to have no case. Robert's quick temper had been wonderfully disciplined by life since his Oxford days. He had now very little of that stiff nakedness so fatal to the average reformer, which makes a man insist on all or nothing from his followers. He took what each man had to give. Nay, he made it almost seem as though the grudging support of Lestrange, or the critical half-patronising approval of the young barrister from the West, who came down to listen to him and made a favour of teaching in his night-school, were as precious to him as was the whole-hearted, the self-abandoning veneration, which the majority of those about him had begun to show towards the man in whom, as Charles Richards said, they had seen God. At last, by the middle of November, the whole great building, with the exception of the top floor, was cleared and ready for use. Robert felt the same joy in it, in its clean paint, the half-filled shelves of the library, the pictures standing against the walls ready to be hung, the rolls of bright-coloured matting ready to be laid down, as he had felt in the Muirwell Institute. He and Flaxman, helped by a voluntary army of men, worked at it from morning till night. Only Catherine could ever persuade him to remember that he was not yet physically himself. Then came the day when the building was formally opened, when the gilt letters over the door, the new brotherhood of Christ, shone out into the dingy street, and when the first enrolment of names in the book of the brotherhood took place. For two hours a continuous stream of human beings surrounded the little table besides which Ellesmere stood, inscribing their names, and receiving from him the silver badge bearing the head of Christ, which was to be the outward and conspicuous sign of membership. Men came of all sorts, the intelligent, well-paid artisan, the padded clerk or small accountant, stalwart warehousemen, huge carters and draymen, the boys attached to each by the laws of the profession, often straggling lumpishly behind his master. Women were there, wives who came because their lords came, or because Mr. Ellesmere had been that good to them that anything they could do to oblige him, they would and welcome. Prim pupil-teachers, holding themselves with straight, superior shoulders. Children, who came trooping in, grinned up into Robert's face and retreated again with red cheeks, the silver badge tight-clasped in hands which not even much scrubbing could make passable. Flaxman stood and watched it from the side. It was an extraordinary scene. The crowd, the slight figure on the platform, the two great inscriptions represented the only articles of the new faith gleaming from the freshly coloured walls. In thee, O Eternal, have I put my trust. This do in remembrance of me. The recesses on either side of the hall, lined with white marble, and destined, the one to hold the names of the living members of the Brotherhood, the other to commemorate those who had passed away. Empty this last, save for the one poor name of Charles Richards. The copy of Giotto's Perduan Virtues, Faith, Fortitude, Charity, and the like, which broke the long wall at intervals. The cynic and the onlooker tried to assert itself against the feeling with which Gier seemed overcharged. In vain. Whatever comes of it, Flaxman said to himself with strong involuntary conviction, whether he fails or no, the spirit that is moving here is the same spirit that spread the church, the spirit that sent out Benedictine and Franciscan into the world, the father children of Luther, or Calvin, or George Fox, the spirit of devotion through a man to an idea through one much-loved, much-trusted soul to some eternal verity, newly caught, 
newly conceived behind it. There's no approaching the idea for the masses except through the human life. There's no lasting power for the man except as the slave of the idea. A week later he wrote to his aunt as follows. He could not write to her of Rose, he did not care to write of himself, and he knew that Ellesmere's club address had left a mark even on her restless and overcrowded mind. Moreover, he himself was absorbed. "'We are in the full stream of religion-making. I want you with a fascination you at a distance cannot possibly understand, even where my judgment demurs and my intelligence protests that the thing cannot live without Ellesmere, and that Ellesmere's life is a frail one. After the ceremony of enrolment which I described to you yesterday, the council of the new brotherhood was chosen by popular election, and Ellesmere gave an address. Two-thirds of the council, I should think, are working men, the rest of the upper class. Ellesmere, of course, president. Since then the first religious service under the new constitution has been held. The service is extremely simple, and the basis of the whole is new bottles for the new wine. The opening prayer is cited by everybody's present standing. It is rather an act of adoration and faith than a prayer, properly so called. It represents, in fact, the placing of the soul in the presence of God. The mortal turns to the eternal, the ignorant and imperfect looked away from themselves to the knowledge and perfection of the all-holy. It is Ellesmere's drawing up, I imagine. At any rate, it is essentially modern, expressing the modern spirit, answering to modern need, as I imagine the first Christian prayers expressed the spirit and answered to the need of an earlier day. Then follows some passage from the life of Christ. Elsmere reads it and expounds it in the first place, as a lecturer might expound a passage of Tacitus, historically and critically. His explanation of miracle, his efforts to make his audience realise the germs of miraculous belief which each man carries with him in the constitution and inherited furniture of his mind, are some of the most ingenious, perhaps the most convincing, I have ever heard. My heart and my head have never been very much at one, as you know, on this matter of the marvellous element in religion. But then, when the critic has done, the poet and the believer begins. Whether he has got hold of the true Christ is another matter, but that the Christ he preaches moves the human heart as much as, and in the case of the London artisan more than, the current orthodox presentation of him, I begin to have ocular demonstration. I was present, for instance, at his children's Sunday class the other day. He brought them up to the story of the crucifixion, reading from the revised version, and amplifying wherever the sense required it. Suddenly a little girl laid her head on the desk before her, and with choking sobs implored him not to go on. The whole class seemed ready to do the same. The poor human pity of the story, the contrast between the innocence and the pain of the sufferer, seemed to be more than they could bear, and there was no comforting sense of a jugglery by which the suffering was not real after all, and the sufferer not man but God. He took one of them upon his knee and tried to console them, but there was something piercingly penetrating and austere even in the consolations of this new faith. He did but remind the children of the burden of gratitude laid upon them. Would you let him suffer so much in vain? His suffering has made you and me happier and better to-day, at this moment, than he could have been without Jesus. He will understand how and why more clearly when you grow up. Let us in return keep him in our hearts always, and obey his words. It is all you can do for his sake, just as all you could do for a mother who died would be to follow her wishes and sacredly keep her memory.' 
Well, that was about the gist of it. It was a strange little scene, wonderfully suggestive and pathetic. But a few more words about the Sunday service. After the address came a hymn. There are only seven hymns in the little service book, gathered out of the finest we have. It is supposed that in a short time they will become so familiar to the members of the Brotherhood that they will be sung readily by heart. The singing of them in the public service alternates with an equal number of psalms, and both psalms and hymns are meant to be recited or sung constantly in the homes of the members, and have become part of the everyday life of the Brotherhood. They have been most carefully chosen, and a sort of ritual importance has been attached to them from the beginning. Each day in the week has its particular hymn or psalm. Then the whole wound up with another short prayer, also repeated standing, a commendation of the individual, the brotherhood, the nation, the world, to God. The phrases of it are terse and grand. One can see at once that it has laid hold of the popular sense, the popular memory. The Lord's Prayer followed. Then, after a silent pause of recollection, Ellesmere dismissed them. Go in peace in the love of God and the memory of his servant, Jesus. I looked carefully at the men as they were tramping out. Some of them were among the secularist speakers you and I heard at the club in April. In my wonder, I thought of a saying of Vinay's. C'est pour la religion que le peuple a la plus de talent. C'est en religion qui montre le plus d'esprit. In a later letter he wrote, I have not yet described to you what is perhaps the most characteristic, the most binding practice of the new brotherhood. It is that which has raised most angry comment, cries of profanity, wanton insults, and what not. I came upon it yesterday in an interesting way. I was working with Elsmere at the arrangement of the library, which is now becoming a most fascinating place, under the management of a librarian chosen from the neighbourhood, when he asked me to go and take a message to a carpenter who has been giving us voluntary help in the evenings after his day's work. He thought that as it was the dinner hour, and the man worked in the dock close by, I might find him at home. I went off to the model lodging-house where I was told to look for him, mounted the common stairs, and knocked at his door. Nobody seemed to hear me, and as the door was ajar I pushed it open. Inside was a curious sight. The table was spread for the midday meal. Round the table stood four children, the eldest about fourteen, and the youngest six or seven. At the other end of it stood the carpenter himself in his working apron, a brawny Saxon, bowed a little by his trade. Before him was a plate of bread, and his horny hands were resting on it. The street was noisy, they not heard my knock, and as I pushed open the door there was an old coat hanging over the corner of it which concealed me. Something in the attitudes of all concerned reminded me kept him where I was, silent. The farmer lifted his right hand. The master said, This do in remembrance of me. The children stooped for a moment in silence. Then the youngest said slowly, in a little softened cockney voice that touched me extraordinarily, Jesus, we remember thee always. It was the appointed response. As he spoke, I recollected the child perfectly at Ellesmere's class. I also remember that she had no mother, that her mother had died of cancer in June, visited and comforted to the end by Ellesmere and his wife. Well, the great question, of course, remains. Is there a sufficient strength of feeling and conviction behind these things? If so, after all, everything was new once, and Christianity was but modified Judaism. 
December the 22nd. I believe I shall soon be as deep in this matter as Ellesmere. In Elgood Street, great preparations are going on for Christmas. But it will be a new sort of Christmas. We shall hear very little, it seems, of angels and shepherds, and a great deal of the humble childhood of a little Jewish boy whose genius grown to maturity transformed the Western world. To see Ellesmere with his boys and girls about him trying to make them feel themselves the heirs and fellows of the Nazarene child, to make them understand something of the lessons that child must have learnt, the sights he must have seen, and the thoughts that must have come to him, is a spectacle of which I will not miss more than I can help. Don't imagine, however, that I am converted exactly, but only that I am more interested and stimulated than I have been for years. And don't expect me for Christmas. I shall stay here. New Year's Day I am writing from the library of the New Brotherhood. The amount of activity, social, educational, religious, of which this great building promises to be the centre, is already astonishing. Everything, of course, including the constitution of the Infant Society, is as yet purely tentative and experimental. But for a scheme so young, things are falling into working order with wonderful rapidity. Each department is worked by committees under the Central Council. Ellesmere, of course, is ex officio chairman of a large proportion. Wardlaw, Mackay, I, and a few other fellows run the rest for the present. But each committee contains working men, and it is the object of everybody concerned to make the workman element more and more real and efficient. What with the tax on the members, which was fixed by a general meeting, and the contributions from outside, the society already commands a fair income. But Ellesmere is anxious not to attempt too much at once, and will go slowly and train his workers. Music, it seems, is to be the great feature in the future. I have my own projects as to this part of the business, which, however, I forbid you to guess at. By the rules of the Brotherhood, every member is bound to some work in connection with it during the year, but little or much as he or she is able. And every meeting, every undertaking of whatever kind, opens with the special word or formula of the Society. This do in remembrance of me. January the 6th. Besides the Sunday lectures, Ellesmere is pegging away on Saturday evenings at The History of the Moral Life in Man. It is a remarkable course, and very largely attended by people of all sorts. He tries to make it an exposition of the leading principles of the new movement, of that continuous and only revelation of God in life and nature, which is in reality the basis of his whole thought. By the way, the letters that are pouring in upon him from all parts are extraordinary. They have shown a mountain degree of interest in ideas of the kind, which are surprising to a lady Laodicean like me. But he's not surprised, says he always expected it, that there are thousands who only want a rallying point. His personal effect, the love that is felt for him, the passion and energy of the nature, never has our generation seen anything to equal it. As you perceive, I am reduced to taking it all seriously, and don't know what to make of him or myself. She, poor soul, is now always with him, comes down with him day after day, and works away. She no more believes in his ideas, I think, than she ever did, but all her antagonism is gone. In the midst of the stir about him, her face often haunts me. It has changed lately. She is no longer a young woman, but so refined, so spiritual. But he is ailing and fragile. 
There is the one cloud on a scene that fills me with increasing wonder and reverence. End of Book 7, Chapter 49